call it. Call it, yes. For what? Just call it. Welcome to episode 76 of Call It Friend of the podcast, where two friends watch two films decided by the flip of a coin. This week, myself, Andy J. Ritchie, and my co-host, Donica Tiernan, watched Bernardo Bertolucci's 1972 film, Last Tango in Paris, and Michelangelo Antonioni's 1975 film, The Passenger. As always, the podcast contains spoilers for the films right from the start. Check out JustWatch.com for streaming and rental options in your region. At the time of recording, The Passenger's on YouTube, so you can check out there for free. You can find us on Instagram at Podcast. Drop us a line there for any feedback or recommendations. Peace. So, uh, one of the films had lots of boobs this week. It did. And one of them had far away nudity. Yes. Far away, dark, uh, arty nudity. Which was not appreciated by the lady who was getting nude. No, she didn't like it? No, because I think she had had a pretty negative experience in the first nudie. The first nudie time. It put her off for the rest of her life. Yeah. So, was this the first Bernardo Bertolucci film you've seen? Oh no, should we watch one for the podcast? Well, I, I think it was the first one that I saw... Back in the day. Oh, uh, so you had seen this before? Filmography. Yeah, I watched it when I was 16. I didn't really appreciate it the first time around. Hmm. I think I was too young. So I definitely got a lot more out of it this time. The only scenes I really recalled, the ones that were sort of seared into my memory, were the rape scene, mm-hmm. unsurprisingly, and also the ending. Okay. I remember I attempted to watch this once with a French lady. I was trying to seduce her at the time and we both fell asleep. That's not ideal. No. For seduction purposes. Yes, indeed. Where was this? Was this in Belgium or something? No, this was in Limerick in Ireland. French lady in Ireland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She she lived a couple of doors down from me uh, when I was in university and I never did uh, seduce her in the end. Probably needed to change the film. Yeah, this is it. I met an Iranian lady soon afterwards. And seduced her instead. The end. Good for you. Yeah, yeah, it was all right. Well, on the back of your sexual conquests. Okay, so besides Last Tango in Paris and um, The Last Emperor, have you seen much Bernardo Bertolucci? Yeah, I think the only other thing I mentioned in the Last Emperor episode is I watched Stealing Beauty. Oh, that's the one with Liv Tyler, right? That is the one with Liv Tyler where she, she get the lads out. loses her virginity. Nice. You've watched a lot of his films, right? I seem to remember you were going through like the Spider Strategium and yeah, I have. I've like so in the last year or so, um, I watched before the Revolution, the Conformist, the Spider Strategium. Strategium. I have seen um, the Last Emperor. Obviously, watch it for this. I watched Nineteen Hundred mm-hmm. many moons ago, like uh, maybe five or six years ago, I'd say. So yeah, it's fair to say I've seen a fair bit of what he's. Got to, got, got to offer what he's got to say. I'd say my favourite of his films is The Conformist. I would really recommend people check that out. But there's actually some very direct visual references to The Conformist in Last Tango in Paris, the dancing scene at the end. But also, like I think I talked to, spoke to you about this before, just an odd but very good film is called um, Before the Revolution, which is one of his um, early ones. It might be his first one. No, no, it's his second film, actually. Yeah. The first one is about a prostitute. I haven't seen that. Um, And it's about a guy having a love affair with his hot aunt and Mm. kind of falling out of love with uh, the young man's game of socialism. Now, Bertolucci himself never fell out of love with uh, Marxism and socialist. He was a Marxist socialist to the end. 
seems to have been very popular in Italy. Took on a life that it didn't quite get anywhere else. Didn't he get the director of Tuki Buki out of jail? Yeah, with the out commies? of jail. That's right. Anyway, yeah. I mean, he was making films at a time where it was kind of cool to lean into your big ideas and be pretentious. You know what I mean? I don't think that I don't think people do that anymore, really. I think we can see that in both of the films. You seem really drawn to Italian cinema. You've gotten to Giallo in a big way. Yeah. Is there something that just attracts? Is it you just you like the idea of people drinking little cups of coffee and <laughs> riding around on scooters and stuff? I don't. I don't know. I mean, it's a good question. I suppose uh, it probably just comes down to. A few different things, actually, I suppose. It probably, like, part of it is so many of them appear on, you know, lists of, you know, greatest movies mm-hmm. that you have to see. I suppose um, in the case of The Last Tango in Paris, that was just simply something you have to see at some point. So I, I popped it on the list here. When it comes to uh, Jallo, I suppose, a couple of years ago, I got into slasher movies in a big way. And then I heard that the uh, granddaddies of slasher movies were the Jallos. So I started watching those and I started really enjoying them. And I listened to a podcast about them and... Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just naturally ended up there. But you have to realize as well, it was very much the cool thing to do for actors in the 60s and 70s as well, like American actors, to go over and make a film in Italy like they all did it. Anyone who is anyone anyway. So what did you think about Last Tango in Paris? So I read the accompanying article. Uh, did you read the Pauline Kael one? The big massive, it's her most famous review, maybe. I didn't read the entire review. I just looked at some of the details. Uh, it seemed like she was a big fan of Brando's portrayal of Paul. Yeah. So I suppose I'll come at it through the viewpoint of the Kale article, I suppose. So just because we weren't around at the time when Last Tango in Paris came out, I can't speak to exactly how Brando's performance would have changed the medium. But one thing I would say is, yeah, when you think about it, I can't think of a performance so raw having come out before that. I can't think of anything. And nowadays it's commonplace and even cool for actors to milk it up like that. You know what I mean? But I can't think of anything that would have come before that that's as sort of raw and weird and improvised. Yeah, I I didn't realize just how improvised it was the first time I watched it because watching it this time around, he's really funny. Yes, but it's, he's yes, so it's very clearly funny. drawing on his own experiences and he's putting so much of himself into the performance. And, you know, for years afterwards, he said, I'm never going to do anything that leaves me this vulnerable ever again. Mm. And obviously he fell out with the director for like 15 years or so. Yeah, he said he felt manipulated by Bertolucci as well over the sex scenes and, and things. I think, yeah, the sex scenes, but not only that, but just that that level of being so vulnerable on screen, mm-hmm. which I think at a certain point you have to accept. <laughs> I don't know. He was, he's saying all these things in front of a camera. Like, what did, he, what did he think the final product was going to be? Yeah. Not this, apparently. But it is it is very funny. I would say that. And yeah, raw and naked and that. And um, Maria Schneider is quite good in it. But I mean, it's kind of the Brando show, really, even though she's got her lads yeah. out all the time. But what I took it to be as, actually, I, I did, I, I, I enjoyed it as a film. I thought it was good. And I think with the actual, the actual conception of the film, I forget what exactly Kale's interpretation of what it's about was. Oh, yeah, she, like a guy just trying to completely separate sex from his life, you know, and her trying to do it as well. I basically thought it was, you know, I think it's something that all ladies actually kind of go through in sort of getting over 
sort of daddy issues or, you know, weird sex stuff and wanting to get on with their life. Because, so her dad's dead in the film and she puts on his uniform and everything. Clearly he's a big presence in her life. And then, despite the fact that she's got a relationship with a director who's clearly a cipher for Bertolucci, what she does instead is goes to this room that's painted like the inside of a vagina and just has loads of dirty, degrading experiences with this rotten old perv. And then eventually, when they leave the, the room and she realizes the, the, the value in her regular life, she's made to realize it by seeing him outside of the context of sex because he's ju- she sees him for what he is, just a ridiculous buffoon. And then she, as he chases her down, she shoots him and gets over it. And I thought that was actually a nice little neat trick. So it works very well as a... That's what Ber- Bernardo Bertolucci does in actually all the films I can think of that I've seen of him, except the historical ones, except 1900 and The Last Emperor, is their neat little psychological tricks. Like I think The Last Emperor is actually about uh, a young woman who's got father issues. You think so too? Yeah. Nice. That's what it's all about. China's the lady. But, uh, I never. I mean, I, I, it's it seems like such a mean spirited film. It's funny that it came from fifty years ago. Yeah, just a, <laughs> yeah, that's the way true. that Paul treats Jan <laughs> and some of the things that he comes out with. Oh, but, some of them are very funny. <laughs> there's there's one there's one scene where Jeanne has been spending time with Thomas, the film director, the, her fiance, who fawns over her, mm. and he's been kind of kind of going along with i feel like we've i feel like there's some other film which is we i feel like we've talked about this very this same kind of trope in some other film but i can't think what but anyway her her fiance is kind of fawning over her and going along with he's this film director who's trying to get into into her mindset and go through her youth etc etc and so she's talking about her childhood in these very kind of lyrical way and then she, later on, she goes and meets Paul, and she's kind of recounting the same thing. <laughs> and Brando just goes, "What a load of horseshit!" Yeah, <laughs> it's a load. Of- <laughs> he just dismisses her entirely. I also think it's like if you ever if you ever listened to um, the late Patrice O'Neill talk about how he used to treat women. Yeah, it's, it's very much in that mold. It's this like <laughs> last tango in Paris is kind of like an experiment to play out to see their, you know, it's almost like if they were real people, they'd be lab rats. And the experiment is to see how far you can push a woman with that kind of shit before she Do snaps. Do women really like a bastard? That's the, the test. Yeah. And like, he's like, yeah, I want to, I want to get a pig and you've got to fuck yeah, a pig. That whole pig, the pig part, even to me, I was shocked. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, and I'm not easily shocked. I was like, fucking hell. He's talking about getting a pig, getting the pig to, to have sex with Jeanne. She asks, and then he's talking about the pig vomiting. And she her, eats the vomit, yeah. Yeah, and he and she's like, yes, I'll do that. And like... Uh, I, it- but that's just like, that's just that mad sort of crazy talk full of lust. But still, in that, it, it, I was shocked in 2022. I, I do not recall that the first time I watched it. But 1972, that oh, was yeah, people's minds. Like when she gets him to, when he gets her to like finger him in the ass and stuff like that. Oh like, yeah, in I forgot about that. got the Stifler treatment, yeah. Because the thing is, that's like, um, this is about to get proper snooty. This is what the Bernardo Bellucci's of the world bring out in me. Uh, the D.H. Lawrence book, Women in Love, that's like, that, like, that was super controversial for that thesis. That thesis, <laughs> that thesis, the thesis of that book, I'm not making this up, 
is that basically what any relationship needs to have, you know, the two stable sides of masculine and feminine is um, for dudes to get fingered during sex. That's the grand (laughs) thesis of the book. He needs to have his gay side satisfied as well as his heterosexual side if his heterosexual relationship is to be healthy. I mean, it's. I think that's the biggest problem with Last Tango in Paris. Not problem per se, just it would have been more interesting. It's like Ingmar Bergman said that the film would only have made sense if it was about two men. Like, it should have been a gay story. And that's what it was going to be. Oh, I think that's actually, I think that's absolutely correct. Because the film made way more sense. The film, like also, it's like, whenever you hear all the stories about it, of course, the, you know, it's more, it's probably more known for the poor, for the maltreatment of Maria Schneider than anything else Mm -hmm. at this point. And like, you're watching it and going, yeah, yeah, that totally makes sense. Like, she was 19 when she did that shit. Yeah, and Brando's 48. And gross. <laughs> hey, listen, when I see Brando's hairline, I start and I look in the mirror, I'm like, Jesus. Yeah, and she's happening. It's coming. And she there, she says to him, like, uh, yeah, you're getting fat and you're disgusting. And it's like, yeah, you're, you, what are you doing, Maria Schneider? You're beautiful. Like, get out of there. This is how humans interact, oh. certainly in 1972 and in the mind of Bernardo Bertolucci. Yeah. Oh God, like I, I've the, the the thing is as well as like I have been around like not not many years now because <laughs> That's hopefully people stop. I've been around, so hopefully people. You know, I don't think I know anybody who would be like this anymore. But I have been in the same room as couples where the man behaves like that verbally to the girl, and it's really uncomfortable. And um, this, like, I think realistically depicts that. But at the same time, he's hilarious. He's so funny in it. I laughed a lot during this film. Do you remember when he pulls a mooner at the ballroom? At the end? <laughs> oh, God, that made me laugh so much. <laughs> There's times when he's he, he when he starts shouting. I was genuinely scared. <laughs> I'm scared of Marlon Brando when he shouts. Well, yeah, because I suppose he's got this authority to him. He's he's a scary guy. And you like you had seen it before, so yeah. you knew that you knew the ending. I did not. Um, yeah, I wonder how sh- how shocking was that to you? Like, were you expecting that to happen? Did by you the, think when, he- when he's chasing her, I thought that that was going to happen. But initially, I thought he was going to kill her. And the one thing that was kind of shocking to me now is that she is like muttering to herself, going like, it's just a stranger. He tried to rape me. Mm. Because, you know, like nowadays, she could go to the police and just be like, yeah, fucking shot this lunatic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, He's totally. fucking chasing me. Of course I got my dad's gun and shot him. Yeah, yeah. And the guy, I think the response would be like, fair play, self-defense. I mean, that's, look, my theory of what the film is actually about, I mean, there's very little argument with that, is there? This is a lady with daddy issues who gets over them. Yeah, I I don't think that's a controversial. Maybe it is a controversial reading of the film now. I don't know. But if I mean, it's, that is a film about toxic masculinity or whatever. But yeah, that's how I would read it. Certainly. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly like you're saying. Sort of it. And the thing is, as well, okay, you, there are there's definitely toxic. And also, the film also, is toxic it, it, masculinity. It might not intend to be, but it just is because of what went on. You know. It also paints her fiance Thomas as just this wishy-washy kind of guy that yeah he's he's, and she's kind of looking for something else she's intrigued by real manhood yeah that's it she and then after a period of time she realizes like oh wait this is not actually good this is not what i wanted when he i mean the 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 key point in the film is when Paul opens up and starts talking about his past and the fact that he owns this CD flop house. 
with his ex, his his now dead ex wife. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I la- dead wife. <laughs> I, I just laughed at a, at a specific bit, which I thought was quite funny. You know when um, this lady with this guy are trying to get into the hotel. <laughs> oh yeah. And then um, the guy just leaves because the lady's not hot. <laughs> is, like, is, that, is, is it only at that point when he's going into the hotel that he realizes that she's painted up like she looks like some kind of pantomime villain? Oh, yeah, it's grim. Like she's got she's got some rough, some rough makeup. on. And the guy just goes, yeah, no, actually, I'm yeah, not changing my mind. I'm I need not to go back this. to my family. Yeah, yeah. I thought that it's was pretty times. funny. But then Brando beats him up and tells him to go back and have sex with the lady. Does he actually take him back? No, he just no. He beats him up and then he runs away, yeah. It's a weird little scene. I wonder why he's reacting like that. Well, he has to it's it's he has to protect the name of his hotel. No. That's his business. There is there's something in it in it. didn't did he put like his lines on her bum or something? Yeah, he taped lines I think that was where Bertolucci drew the line. He said I'm not going to let you put them on on her arse, but he taped lines on Maria Schneider's naked body. Shit. I I think Brando's argument for that. We'll we'll get into that a bit when we talk about Brando. Mm. Honestly, we could do like multiple podcasts just going through Marlon Brando's life. Yeah. Because there's way too much stuff there. He might be one of the most interesting actors ever in terms of the insane shit that he got up to. But well, let's hit it up. So will we? Shall we, yeah, shall we get into that? Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, so, there'll be heaps to, to, to talk about, about yeah, with yeah, this anyway. There's so much, yeah, there's so much. Yeah, so Marlon Brando, who played Paul, the American expatriate and hotel owner, he was born in Omaha, Nebraska on April 3rd, 1924. Both of his parents were alcoholics, and oh. Brando particularly hated his father, who constantly told him he'd amount to nothing. That's why I think he was drawing on a lot of that, considering the dialogue was largely improvised, his dialogue anyway, so... Mm. I get the sense that he's drawing a lot on some of his un- childhood unhappiness. Uh, when he was four, Brando was sexually abused by his teenage governess, which is like a, a live-in private tutor. By a lady? And, yeah, a lady. And Brando became attached to her and was distraught when she left him. And for the rest of his life, he had a, he was uh, he was deeply distraught over that loss. All of this makes perfect sense. Yeah. Just because... This could just be the character of Paul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is just... I, like particularly, yeah, with the types of performances Brando was wanted to give, it's just, yeah, that makes sense to me. That, at some point when they mention Paul's backstory, it sounds like some of Brando's acting roles. I can't remember exactly. But oh, yeah, one yeah, was totally. Like, yeah, he was in Japan for da 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 There was all these things that he's done, and it just literally sounds like roles. Yeah, well, also, there's playing. like the uh, there's that aspect, like Bertolucci has created a composite of, Amer- of American archetypes for his background. Mm. You know, he's a, a Cuban yeah. revolutionary. Um, yeah, yeah. A fucking journalist, like very Hemingway type figure is what yeah, you're looking yeah, at. Yeah. A boxer, Hemingway again. As a team, Brando was sent to military academy, but dropped out after getting into trouble repeatedly for insubordination. And during World War II, he tried to enlist in the army, but his induction physical revealed that a football injury he had sustained at Shattuck had left him with a trick knee. Hmm. And he was classified 4F and not inducted. Didn't make it into World War II, but he went to New York City instead to become an actor like his older sister Jocelyn, whose most famous role was in Fritz Lang's The Big Heat in 1953. Good movie. And then he studied the Stanislavski system with Stella Adler, 
And although he was regarded as a method actor, he frequently disagreed and he claimed to have abhorred Lee Strasberg's teachings. He hated method and instead wanted to be naturalistic. Huh. According to Dustin Hoffman, Brando would often talk to cameramen and fellow actors about their weekend, even after the director would call action. Once Brando felt he could deliver the dialogue as natural as that conversation, he would he would start the film dialogue. He'd start the take. See, I think like that's the kind of part we'll we'll get to the cue cards in a second but that naturalistic style that's why i appreciate of marlon brando mm. i'd be fully on board with that i think i think a warm-up is necessary yeah but i mean or is useful i mean there's so many different sides to the way people do this shit you know what i mean there's you know the i mean the most glib response to it would probably be that famous thing that uh what's his face ch- said um uh you know the famous british yeah, guy acting dear boy yeah that's why they call it acting dear boy uh, Sir Lawrence Olivier. That's right. Yeah, so, I mean, that was Lawrence Olivier smashing Hoffman, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I still, I don't know, I have, I have time for that. I think the way Brando did it feels, I like the naturalistic element of that, although it was something that he got slammed for over the years himself. Just being, being difficult awful, to work with. Difficult to work with, causing problems. If you if you go through his bio, there's multiple projects where he it's like brando uh fell out with co-star blah 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 brando was difficult to work with brando caused numerous problems on set just all the way through every single role he was also a joker he used to do jokes to people which you know (laughs) well i I don't know how you feel about people doing jokes but uh (sighs) depends how far they go with that i guess he, when the boys... If it's like jackass levels, I'm like, all right, maybe not. When the boys, uh, when he's being carried out of the hospital on a stretcher in The Godfather, he um, he took like l- loads of weights and barbells and put them under the blanket with him. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair enough. I don't have any problem with that. Brando's first film role was The Men in 1950 about a paraplegic ex-soldier. By Brando's own account, it may have been because of this film that his draft status was changed from 4F to 1A. He had uh, surgery on his trick knee and was no longer physically debilitated enough to in- to incur exclusion from the draft. And when Brando reported to the induction center, he answered a questionnaire by saying his race was human. <laughs> his color was seasonal oyster white to beige. <laughs> and he told an army doctor that he was psychoneurotic. But when the draft board referred him to a psychiatrist, Brando explained that he'd been expelled from military school and had severe problems with authority. Coincidentally, the psychiatrist knew a doctor friend of Brando, so Brando avoided military service during the Korean War. Nice. But yeah, his use of cue cards early on was looking for authenticity, according to him, although there was also claims that he was dyslexic and this was the only way that he could really focus on the on the script. Hmm. But, but his argument was, if you don't know what the words are, but you have a general idea of what they are, then you look at the cue card and it gives you the feeling to the to the viewer, hopefully, that the person is really searching for what he's going to say. Hmm. I mean, yeah, it does make sense. But you're of the acting, dear boy. I don't know. Nah, I think, I'm, uh, I'm like whatever gets it done, to be honest. Yeah. It, I could see how it could be extremely disruptive for a film set. Especially if you've got one guy who's doing this and everyone else is more traditional. I think after hearing, like, there's just... I think certain extremities need to be dismissed and chastised on just, like, dickishness. 
Like just like uh, if you ever heard of the kind of crack that Jared Leto got up to when he was playing the Joker. Yeah, I, sending people shit in a box and that type of thing. Yeah, yeah, I'd just be like, you're fired, man. Sorry. That. But if it, the thing is, I could take that from Marlon Brando far more than from Jared Leto. I mean, do you think Jared Leto is going to become the Marlon Brando of his time? <laughs> he's clearly a good actor, but he's also, you know, he's been accused of all kinds of sordid shenanigans. Plus, he's in a terrible band, just my opinion, and also a fact. Yeah, I would say that too. And they're very successful. People like that band a lot. They are, yeah. They have a they have some island in here in Croatia where they do a festival and people all dress up in white. That is it's lame. like a kind of cult thing. Yeah. I'm searching for it. I've been looking for the island. I can't find it. Desperate to go there. Hell yeah. In my in my white suit. Pull a Mooney in tribute to Marilyn Brando. Just go there. Tempting. <laughs> Pull a Mooney. <laughs> I, I thought that was so funny. I haven't seen anybody pull a Mooney in years. Brando's biography is so long. There's just so much to uh, he. There's so many, <laughs> so many aspects of his personal life that could form multiple films. But he had uh, eleven children from multiple different women, and one of them killed another one. Two of them are dead. Uh, Christian and Cheyenne. Uh, Christian died of pneumonia. Cheyenne committed suicide because Christian, her half brother, killed her boyfriend. Jesus. Yeah, there's all kinds of that type of thing going on. He owned an island. It was yeah. He, there's there's mad mad things going on. He was nominated for eight Academy Awards. You reckon you how many of these do you think you can name? Oh, very few. But I'll, I'll go for it. Uh, um, I would say well, uh, there's obviously The Godfather and uh, On the Waterfront. Those are the wins. Those yeah. are the two wins of the of the eight. One Eyed Jacks. One Eyed Jacks is not there. Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar is there. Nineteen fifty three. Uh, I'll say Superman. Superman, sadly not there. Academy did not respect him for that. I'll say Last Tango in Paris. Last Tango in Paris is correct. Uh, You're at four. I'll say Apocalypse Now. Nope. Oh, I might be. I think I'm out then. His performance is nomination for playing the role of Stanley Kowalski in the Tennessee Williams. uh, Uh, Streetcar Named Desire, of course. Yeah. Yeah. The year after that, he played, uh, I think it's a Mexican revolutionary. Oh, in Viva Zapata. In a, yeah, Viva Zapata. Julius Caesar on the waterfront. In 1957, he he was nominated for his role in a film we've talked about before because it featured Red Buttons. Remember talking about old old Red Buttons, the red. guy, the, the former uh, elevator operator. Yeah, and the comedian. Yeah. What, what was yeah, he yeah. in again? He was in some heist Sayonara. movie. Well, what, what, what did we watch him in? Yeah. We watched him in The Poseidon Adventure. That's right, yeah. But yeah, he was in this 1957 film Sayonara. Brando is nominated for that. Also, I I watched a clip of Marlon Brando from a film from 1956, so the year before Sayonara, called The Tea House of the August Moon. And Brando plays a character called Sakini, who is an Okinawan. And he spent two months in Okinawa learning the mannerisms of people. And then when he filmed the role, he had two hours of makeup every day. It's definitely worth uh, having a little look at that because... You don't see many people doing that nowadays. As one of the YouTube comments says, this is the best Asian actor since Mickey Rooney. (laughs) That's good. I'll I'll definitely be watching that. Yeah, that sounds fun. So yeah, then Godfather, Last Tango in Paris. The last one was in 1989. I think it's a South African story. Yeah, it's set during apartheid. What's it called? It is called A Dry White Season. It's also got Donald Sutherland and Jürgen Prochnow. Huh. Never heard of that. 
I don't think it was that well received. Uh, it seems okay, actually. Wow, audiences loved it. They gave it an A+. Yeah, I'm not familiar with that film at all. Have you seen much of, like, later Brando? How late are we talking? Because I'm thinking, I mean, I remember watching the score in the cinema back in, like, 2001, and I think that was very much the end. I mean, was that his last performance? Well, I've still yet to watch uh, The Island of Dr. Moreau, and I do intend to because I've heard the making of is excellent as well. Oh, he turned down a bunch of stuff. He turned down Magnolia. He turned down Man on Fire. American History X. Who was he going to be in American History X? Cameron, probably. In American History X, he was going to be, yeah, Cameron, Stacey Keach's character. He, in Magnolia, he was going to be Earl Partridge, Jason Robard's role. Man on Fire, he would have been Christopher Walken's role. Have you ever seen him with uh, Johnny Depp in that Don Juan movie? No, and he was also in a film that Johnny Depp directed called The Brave in 1997, which apparently was not released in a lot of places, and it wasn't released in the US. Anyway, who else have we got to talk about? Miss Schneider, well, no we, doubt. We, yeah, we were getting to we're getting to the Schneiderverse because <laughs> that's what this is. Uh, and if we talk about Maria Schneider now, we don't need to talk about her when we get to the passengers. Two for so, the price of one, birds. folks. Yeah. Maria Schneider, uh, she was 19 during the filming of uh, Last Tango in Paris. As we mentioned, she plays Jeanne, a young Parisian woman. Her father was actor Daniel Jelin, who worked with Hitchcock and Louis Mal. Mm -hmm. He had an affair with a 17-year-old Romanian model called Marie Schneider. Uh, So uh, Maria Schneider was born uh, out of wedlock. She was a guard or, you know, Daniel Jelin was cheating on his wife. A bastard. So... A bastard. Yeah, well, what's the fe- what's the female of bastard? Is it bitch? It's bitch, yes. She's, She's a, a bitch. bitch. Okay. She's born She's a bitch. A bitch. Uh, so she had a very strange relationship, a very distant relationship with her father because her father wouldn't publicly recognize her as his progeny. She left home at 15, moved to Paris, became a model and an extra, and she was basically homeless when she met Bridget Bardot. Bardot took her in. And gave her a place to stay out of respect for her daddy, Daniel Jelan. And then Bridget Bardot introduced her to Warren Beatty. And Warren Beatty was very impressed with young Maria Schneider and took her to William Morris. And she got uh, representation. Can we just say, um, off the record, I don't know officially, he almost definitely had sex with her first. I think that's implied. Mm. It's the 1970s. There's all kinds of the things that are going on are... They're not great, probably, overall, because, well, the experience in Last Last Tango in Paris, which we haven't really touched on at all, the the rape scene. I suppose we'll talk about when we talk about Maria Schneider right now, but yeah. Yeah, it's almost probably the time to to, to go into it. It's almost, the whole film generally is almost emblematic of the issues that Hollywood has and or had both. Fuck it. The way Maria Schneider talked about the rape scene was that it wasn't in the script mm. and she didn't know what was going to happen. It was foisted on her at the at the last moment where Brando's sitting around eating a sandwich and then he tells her to go and bring the butter and then he uses that as lubricant to anally rape her. And she felt that she couldn't say no. This was her first big role. She didn't know that if something wasn't in the script, she didn't have to do it. She, she didn't know that she could just say no. Yeah. Like she's 19 years old. She yeah. had no concept of that. And in 1972, especially, I think now in 2022, you know, society's moved on to appear up to, to a point now where hopefully a young actress would say like, what the fuck? No. Well, the thing is, as well as they have um, intimacy coordinators on sets now, which like, uh, and actually 
I like I've heard them mentioned loads, and actors praise them. And uh, un- uh, really, up until I was watching this and just thinking about poor Maria Schneider being there with Brando and Bertolucci while this was being filmed, and her being nineteen at the time, and I just thought to myself, "Yeah, Jesus Christ, that there's it, that's just it. The utility in that is just like you know, one person who's just there to represent your side completely. You know what I mean? Or yeah. anybody else who's getting their their lads out or anything like that. You know what I mean?" Like the job of the intimacy coordinator is basically in ter- in in the context of sex scenes, they go, like they are the go between between the director and the actor. I mean, it's not that the director can't talk to them, but they like they'll very sp- like because the, the director might be saying he's fucking you, he's fucking you passionately, <laughs> whereas the fucking you know intimacy coordinator would say no, he's going to put his hand here and you know the right, other one right. there. And so stuff. it's actually like the physical movements. Yeah, that yeah, exactly. Sense. And just constantly saying, right, now, are you okay with this? Is everybody yeah. sort of okay with this? You, you know, I mean, and you can see it because the thing is, like, like you just mentioned, she didn't know she could fucking say no to this sort of shit, you know? Yeah. And like, she does seem very distressed in the scene, you know what I mean? In the yeah, scene. yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was part of their thinking was, well, I mean, that's what they argued. They said, we thought if we sprung it on her, it would be more realistic. Yeah, Jesus Christ. Which, <laughs> you can't fucking do that. It's madness. It is, yeah. I mean, but that, like that's, yeah, what William, what, um, William Friedkin did to get his uh, car chase for the French Connection, they did with people, like, basically. Yeah. Which is, it is just a fucking messed up way of thinking. It reminded me a little of, you know, the film City of God. Yeah. There's a part in that where this kid gets shot in the foot by another kid. And he's just crying in such a way that you're just like, that's real. I don't know what's happening now, but that is fucking real. You mean like someone might have stamped on his foot or something? I don't know. It's just, he's, the kid's like really, really upset. And um, the, in the rape scene in this, it, it is that kind of distressing. It's, it's a horrible scene to watch. Schneider felt the trauma of this for the rest of her life. She got into alcohol and drugs. She attempted suicide in the 70s and... It took her a long time. It took her until the 80s to overcome that addiction. But by that point, the roles had dried up. Uh, In between that period, after 1972, she was in The Passenger, of course, Mm. which we'll get to. But I really liked her in that. Off of the back of that, she moved to L.A. Some of the things that that didn't come about, she turned down Black Sunday. Oh, that's a great movie. The the, the Blimp movie. Yeah, the uh, Blimp, the Blimp film. Who directed that? Is that Frankenheimer? It could be no, Frankenheimer. Is it, is it Frankenheimer? That's yeah, she, she turned that down. She, I think she wasn't convinced with the script. She dropped out of Caligula, which I think when she found out just how yeah. sexual <laughs> that was, basically pornographic it was going to be. Well, yeah, Caligula is kind of acknowledged as a porno, isn't it? Yeah, basically. And by the 80s, as I said, she'd overcome addiction, but roles had, had dried up and she became more of a feminist activist. And then, unfortunately, she died of breast cancer in 2011 at the age of 58. Yeah, just a real sort of victim of uh, show business. It's horrible. The last up is uh, Jean-Pierre Leo as Thomas, the film director, Jean's fiance. Mm. A legend of French cinema. He worked with uh, Godard eight times, Truffaut seven. He starred in Truffaut's semi-autobiographical 400 Blows. Yeah, that's right. He's a kid in that, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Very well respected. He's still alive. He's the only one. He's in his late 70s. Despite probably eating cigarettes. I assume so. And everything else. I mean, he's got a little bit. He's gained a bit of weight, let's say. Is he a big man? Since the 1970s. Everyone is. It's interesting to think about that for Brando because it was at some point in the 70s. Brando's 48. 
when he made Last Tango in Paris, at some point in the 70s, he just decides, fuck it, which is a concern to me. I'm thinking as I get older, I'm thinking, you know, if I hit 50, am I just going to go like, I'm gonna, I need to eat everything. Yeah. Because he went up to like 300 pounds. He developed type 2 diabetes. He... <laughs> Yeah. He got big. He There's got big. a particular what, uh, what point. Like that? certain people get it. Like Mar- what's his name? Orson Welles, uh, mm-hmm. who just just dove into that as well. Jim Morrison was a bizarre one. Like, did he get fat? Yeah, big. Uh, oh, look wow. at a picture of Jim Morrison before he died in Paris. He was huge, a bit mm-hmm. like big, sexy Jim Morrison. He's got a big, fat face and no neck. Um, and he was only 27. Yeah, yeah, and like wow. it, this was all in the space of a year as well. Jesus. And it, like, he, honestly, he's a big guy when you, you saw him. The, la- the final picture of him, you're like, Jesus. But um, yeah, I, I think it's something to do with fame, to be honest. I think you just sort of... I think it's something to do with eating. Well, yeah, there's that. But I mean, you just lean into your indulgences so much. You just literally just go, you know what? Fuck it. Fuck this. Fuck it all. Yeah. Just give me. I mean, I've got all these give me people. Three people burgers. Who I don't care. Had, all these. These are people who all had like drug or alcohol problems as well. Did Brando have a drug time. problem? <sighs> I don't know if it was a problem. Maybe he had a good time. But he also uh, he gained and lost weight frequently as well. So maybe someone like maybe Christian Bale is going to become a huge fatty at some point. I mean, the trauma of having to to lose so lose and gain weight and the effect that has on your body can't be good. Plus, it's just it's like. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Like, people didn't used to do stuff like this. Do you know what I mean? Yes. It's like, if you look at Kirk Douglas in Spartacus, the guy's just like, you know, he does not look athletic at all. Like. Yeah, he's probably did smoke like 40 a day, 60 a day, whatever. Uh, Jean-Pierre Leo never met Brando at all during filming because Leo's scenes were filmed on a Saturday and Brando refused to work Saturdays. Respect. He was a, a Monday, Friday, nine to five guy, I guess. So fair play old Marlon Brando. How long did it take to shoot this film? I don't know. I can't find any information about that, but I'm imagining it doesn't seem like it would take a huge amount of time to film, really. Oh, th- th- what's in the film? You, you'd imagine they could get it in a, in a matter of weeks. Yeah. Uh, but these, got, these kind of directors were prone to indulgences, though. I mean, there are some really nice setups and nice shots throughout yeah, no, the, no, no, no. the it's, whole it's, thing. It's I mean. very well made, for sure. How much of the plot shall we go into? The Wikipedia synopsis is incredibly short. It's like I saw that, two yeah. people meet each other, they have sex, they dance, she shoots them. Like a third of the a third of the plot synopsis well, is her just, killing him. Let's shoot the breeze ourselves on it, will we? Yeah, let's see. Yeah, so it starts on the Pont de Bir Hakim, which is uh, for me, I guess, was more made famous in Christopher Nolan's Inception because I have no taste. <laughs> And I, I like I like popular stuff. It's a, the Pont de, Pont de Passy used to be called. Where is that uh, in Inception? It's the part where uh, Elliot Page is learning how to, learning the rules. Ah, okay. It's where basically Christopher Nolan has like explains, here is lots of, here, here are all the rules of the universe and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. enjoy this because it's going to make future viewings of the film incredibly difficult. Exposition, exposition, exposition. Yeah, so it starts there and that's like basically almost directly opposite the Eiffel Tower. I know that the, the, the two characters have some money. I mean, Jeanne seems to come from some kind of money i mean her dad was uh, a military man but they own property and they have a big jungly garden where local uh, arab kids come to shit and <laughs> yeah. get chased off by the the racist housekeeper 
Uh, and Brando has the Brando has some money from his his now uh, recently deceased wife and the the flop house that they own. So like I'm just thinking of it like that apartment, that real estate, what that's worth in 2022. Holy shit! Yeah, even in a shitty condition. Fucking hell, that's worth millions and millions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a very that expensive horrible place. grotty flat would be worth so much money and it's a shit it's a it's like a shithole in this yeah it's got a rat it's got a dead rat oh yeah and brando has some fun with it like a dirt bag <laughs> yeah. Oy. The, the stuff that comes out of brando's mouth is like just saying literally any thought that comes to him it must be it must be like just shit that brando is like i'm just gonna say whatever any old shit and he's so mean like you <laughs> Like he's like you remember what there's one part where he's giving her a bath and he just slaps her on the head. Yeah, <laughs> he just gives her a slap. <laughs> I found all that quite tough. I genuinely did. I felt so bad. I did feel like that Brando character is just awful. <laughs> he's he's a night he's a nightmare. <laughs> he's but, genuinely a bad bad guy. But it does it does like I mean what we were just talking about with Brando getting fat. It does have an element to that to it. Just fuck it. <laughs> that's quite personal, I suppose, then. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder how much that's him and how much is uh, the director. It's There you go, yeah. It's hard to say. Because it's like there's something very Jungian going on between like um, the Brando character versus the director fiancé. It's like, you know, mm. that's Bertolucci outwardly. And then he's kind of, you know, he's giving an expression of, you know, what lies at the heart of every man, of every man. Let's be fair. Yeah, everyone's got like a 48 year old American expatriate <laughs> inside them. Yeah. yeah, everyone wants to be Thomas, but they've got a Paul in them. There's a an, an element of a horror movie to the to me to in this particularly in the opening when she gets the keys to the apartment off that weird black lady who starts laughing manically yeah she's doing that kind of uh, <laughs> cackling <laughs> it reminded witch. me of um whatchamacallit uh tuki buki no don't although yeah there was lots of that in tuki buki wasn't yeah. there yeah no um i was thinking don't look now you have to have a bit of that about you if you're working <laughs> if you're working in, in these type of buildings yeah that's true. I would do that if I was like probably front ask you desk in the interview. somewhere. I would go like, ah, ha, 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 ha. now um, we expect you to be there. spooky uh, to yeah. people for for no reason, for no reason. Just everybody, just be a bit. We weird. would like you to fulfill the mystical black lady trope. <laughs> like, but I'm a I'm an engineer. You do some, you know, I don't care. Bring your voodoo witchcraft. We, we need it. I have a degree. It's just because my country doesn't <laughs> exist anymore. I mean, it's still a degree. So Jean asked to see the apartment. Uh, after having uh, uh, bantied around a little bit, uh, and then up there already is big, spooky, creepy Brando, who... Um, Just sitting there, sitting in silence. Mm. Well, it's good that he is in silence, because he's alone. He's not conversing with the spirits yet, or anything. But he is... He does that kind of the smoldering. Do do people do that in real life? What? That's just Smolder. a thing in films. Yeah, like sit there smoldering, going like, yeah, I, I was here. I've been here. Because if you people you did in real life, if someone story. came in, you'd be like, you'd be like, hey, hello, hi, how's it going? <laughs> like, I'm just, I, I'm just, uh, yeah, I, I just came up like five minutes ago. I have a story. You wouldn't sit there and just go like, uh, go on, what's your story? Oh, God, it's just come flying back to me now. It's f- embarrassing. As I Perfect. was, when I was 16 year old, when I was a 16 year old, I was the worst. 
Like just the worst, just a pretentious. Is this the, because you've watched, uh, you'd watched too many wanky films already? Something like that. My aspiration in life was to be a total wanker, Holden, Holden <laughs> like, Caulfield type thing. Exactly that, right? Yeah, exactly I, I, that. I think there's an. I, I can probably. I'm sure I have bits of that too, but just with less confidence. And I was in a theater production with um, this like really tidy bird, and we were the only two people in it, and. Um, she was older than me, huge whammers. And uh, I remember, yeah, my idea, like, my idea of, I don't know, being cool was just being alone in a place, smoldering, right? And <laughs> so I was there. So I arrived early um, to our, our last, one of our shows anyway. I arrived early. And rather than going out and being social, I sort of sat backstage on my own listening to music. And I thought, ah, oh, this is fucking cool. Yeah, you are cool. And then she came back and she like, I could see it in her face. She's just like, what a fucking weird creep. <laughs> and totally justified. <laughs> and I was like, no, creep. no, no, I'm, no, I'm cool. But I could see it in her face immediately. She's like, oh God, I thought this guy was all right, but this is, this is the worst what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> Oi. Anyway, yeah. So then he gives her a smooch and they have sex right then and there. In one thing I'll say, a very improbable position. Oh, well, like up against the wall like that. Well, for a, much of it, he she like he's supporting her he's, entire he's a, weight yeah, on his a calves. Weird thing. Yeah, I don't know. I've never. I I lack the upper body strength to to pull that maneuver off. But the the thing that I'm more impressed by, which is the what is now like a full on me too. <laughs> you can't. Oh yeah. You have to be incredibly confident to just go over and be like, I'm going to initiate sexual relations now yeah that's not gonna go well in the modern day right but this is not being braggadocious but what what brando pulls off there i've done that loads of times in my life with ladies i had not known very long and had it be a success right okay so i know this is i'm happy this is going to be played in court at some stage (laughs) bear in mind so make sure you're very i'm a happily married man of seven years um and i've I've never strayed or anything like that and quite frankly given that that was my move i don't know how i'd fare in the um sexual marketplace of today like that whole thing with is this okay with i that was not in my vocabulary all right Anyway. This is why you identify with smoldering Brando. Oh, totally. It is. It is. A, it's. A, it's. It's a very confusing time. The modern age. Well, this is a very confusing film to watch because there's parts of stuff that Brando does that's awesome, but then you, he's just, he's a he's a nightmare monster at the same time. Uh, I don't know. Like it sucks, kind of. So they go back to their their separate their different lives. She goes to the train station. We know that we know that Brando's character is suffering some kind of trauma because even yeah. before they first meet, he's crying. We see him walking across the bridge crying, and then he does a big scream. Yeah, we see Jean Lude uh, or what, what's what's the husband's name again? Uh, Thomas. We see Thomas, Thomas. Uh, meet uh, Jean at the train station, and she's surrounded by cameras and stuff like he's filming her. By she- the way, <laughs> huh? I feel like we've had this in some other film, but the that name is Jean. Jean. What did I say? Yeah, like a lady's name, Jean, <laughs> which is a guy. <laughs> which is probably what it should have been. It should have been a guy called Jean. Exactly. John. John and Paul. Yeah. Having mad good gay John, sex John in Paul, Paris. John Paul and Thomas. Yeah, yeah, exactly. John Thomas. They're all in there. Yeah, there you go. So yeah, he's already, he starts filming her. She seems a bit like, ah, fucking leave me alone, will you? And uh, then we go over to where Mar- uh, Marlon's coming from, where Paul's coming from. And 
it appears his wife has just killed herself in a mm. bathtub. Cut her, you know, it's a weird little scene, actually, because you get the feeling that the, the chambermaid fancies him. Why? <laughs> I think Brando gets that feeling from everyone. Yeah. So anyway, the chambermaid is, in, is telling him how his wife killed herself. And then next thing you know, they're back in the apartment. He's decided to rent it. And uh, she she goes back there and um, they kind of make an arrangement where there'll be no names and loads of shagging. Stop me if I'm wrong. That's it, right? No, that's it. That's this uh, anonymous sexual relationship. So your interpretation of the anonymous sexual relationship part is like Brando's trying to... Let's just call him. It's Marlon Brando. Forget Paul. Brando's trying to separate sex from the outside world. Well, you see, no, I just think he's like, I I think he's basically trying, I think he's trying to have a good time, right? That's, he's just being a dirty dog. He's trying to have a good time and like just completely just let himself out, indulge himself completely because the other side of his life is so painful at the time for him. So he's just going there to like have a good shagging time. But I think that one of the points of the film is you you can't like sex is so emotional you can't separate it from the rest of your life basically and I think he brings his trauma there and treats her cruelly. I feel like he's so depressed the whole thing is him trying to kill himself without knowing how. Huh? Yeah. I don't think like too. at the end when he dies I don't think he's bothered. He's quite happy that she shot him. And he does talk at one point where he's talking to his dead wife saying, like, if I knew how to join you, I would. He doesn't have the balls. It's like suicide by stalker relationship. So Suicide by bastard. By being a bastard. So the, the story... Uh the story sort of progresses as such. I don't know the, remember the exact order of things, but anyway. No, no. We see Thomas getting... We see Thomas filming Jean in the week running up. Jean. Jean. <laughs> Uh, in the week running up to their wedding and trying to learn about her past, they go around her old house and she. And that's basically how we learn about her past and about her dad and stuff like that. That in conversations mm-hmm. with her mother. And then on Brando's side of thing, he is living in the flop house he used to own with his wife where there's just a bunch of creeps everywhere, basically. And uh, <laughs> racists. The, his mother-in-law yeah. hates black guys. <laughs> yeah, she sees a black guy on the stairs and she's like, what has this hotel become? Yeah, yeah, what the hell is that guy doing there? And then he also has whiskey with a guy who has the same bathrobe as him who used to plow his wife, which is interesting. I find that scene quite, I could identify with that of two guys in their 40s talking about how to stay in shape. <laughs> talking about like, how do you how do you try to avoid a stomach? And just talking about the stuff that ails them. Yeah. And like all the while then, there the encounters with uh, Jean... Jean? Yeah, there we go. Nailed it. The encounters with Jean at the apartment get more and more weird and sinister, but still intermittently hilarious until eventually, like, he he rapes her. She goes in there one day. He's literally lying on the floor eating a sandwich like a homeless person. (laughs) Like the pig that he is. Like a fucking pig. And then He he references pigs all the time, apart from just the the one scene where he's talking about, like, I want to have a pig, fuck you. He is, he's called someone, he calls her a pig. He's using, he is sitting there like a little piggy. Do you know what's interesting about it as well? There's there's kind of something like the, I remember like there's series four or five of Mad Men 
where the chicken comes, the chickens come home to roost on Don Draper's lifestyle. And he like, I don't know what they did to the hot piece of ass that is John Hamm, but he gets bloated and kind of red skinned <laughs> and you get to see, oh God, that's how, that's how that works out if you live like that. Wasn't Ham also like a drinker? An actual time, alcoholic, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, Brando's like rhetoric against the world is sort of attractive in a way. You can get that. You know, he is very much, he's kind of like a, a Hemingway character or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then you, like, you basically, the whole movie is, you know, there's no frills on it. He's just also like, just a rambling, awful mess. <laughs> and that's, I thought that was, that was interesting because it's kind of, what would you put it? Um, undermining that whole American mythos, I suppose. Like he's just a like a, a mess. He had cones up. I think it's just age, though. If he was twenty eight, it would be completely fine. He could do all. He could act this way, and he could get away with it because he'd still have the looks and mm. his body. His body wouldn't let him down. By forty eight, there's a point where you kind of have to go like, all right, Marlon, maybe anyway, knock it on the head. So what he does is when he's eating his sandwich, he tells her to bring over some butter, and he takes a fistful of it. And I mean. We don't know, it's never explicitly said that he anally rapes her, but I, I, that is kind of... I think that's heavily implied. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a really horrific, disturbing scene, to be honest. Yeah. But one of the weirdest things about it is, then it cuts to, like, later that day or the next morning. Yeah, they're fine. And they're fine! She's fine. Yeah, I don't get that. I mean, were they trying to make some fucking point with that? Maybe that she's so far down the rabbit hole with it that, like... I don't know. She's willing to, or not willing to forgive it, but like, I, I, I can only try to put this in, I guess, the in modern parlance. She's been gaslit. She's been... Yeah, yeah, I suppose. Et cetera, et cetera. She's been manipulated. Anyway, he buries his wife and then she goes back to the apartment and he's not there anymore. She's walking away and then he, he, he runs up behind her and is like, hey, let's be normal together now. <laughs> And she's immediately like, "Ah, oh, no, we're not in the apartment. This, I don't, I don't like this." For, I like immediately, you can see in her face, she's like, oh, "I don't really care for you." Sorry, he's like, "Come on." They go to a, they go to a, a tango bar, and um, have, they have the last tango in Paris. There you go, and uh, they get properly sauced. Or at least he does. Yeah. Anyway, he gets wankered, and then she and she gets he gets wanked off under the table. Does he wank her? Does she wank her him off? Yeah, because you see her. Well, you see her fist moving repeatedly in the groinal in the crotchal zone and then you see her wiping off her hand i think i didn't i admit i missed that yeah i was paying real close attention <laughs> in my laptop but she's clearly just like oh this fucking, fucking yeah the whole douche. thing is just I, that was that awful. seems very painful because i have been in the company of a lady where i've been too drunk oh yeah and we both have yeah and it's like Same lady, that, probably without the hand job. <laughs> yeah, um, it's just embarrassing. We were the hand like. jobs. Um, and then yeah, they're they go dancing and everybody's looking at them weird. And then they she drags him out and he pulls a moon around the ladies in the place. Then she tells him that nah, we're done. Don't want to see you again. Pal. And then she goes away, but Paul chases her down, chases her through the streets all the way back to her apartment. And, and it is, it's full horror mode of that. Yeah, Like scary. when she's, she's gone up the lift in the apartment building and he's got this insane look on his face. He's chasing her. He's going up the stairs. Like if I had a gun at that point, I would be putting holes in him. Yeah. They get back he's to- a scary looking 
guy to her apartment well her mother's apartment whatever and uh, oh no but she lives there too and then she pulls out her father's gun and shoots him and then uh, she mutters to herself she's saying she's gonna like it's he's a stranger he chases he's me, a stranger right? that's how she'll get away guy. with it yeah and uh, yeah the film ends like that I liked it uh, I, it started out I was like oh this is like pretentious 70s intellectualism the movie but uh, I, I quite liked it in the end I liked it much more than I did when I was 16. I got way more out of it this time round. I can, I'm heading towards Paul's age. Mm. So I can see it from that perspective. I like it. It's not really my type of thing overall. It's not something I would choose. It's not the type of film I would choose to go out and watch. I, I can see that it's yeah, important. Me neither. It's amazing to me how many actors really like it. Like some people who name check Ethan Hawke's a huge fan. Brad Pitt wishes said he wished he he wished he could be spliced into Last Tango in Paris. Yeah, what Brad Pitt said that. Yeah, yeah I don't know if he just means like his cock or something. <laughs> he just fancies Maria Schneider. <laughs> he just wants to be like in one scene, just like one one frame, um, like in Fight Club. Yeah, I actors love acting movies a lot. Yeah, I've I've like actors all worship all of John Cassavetti's stuff. And mm-hmm. I'm, at some point last year, I tried to rewatch um, A Woman Under the Influence, a film I remember loving. And I remember thinking, this is, uh, this is very indulgent towards the actors. But this anyway. film is, yeah, I mean, apart from that, apart from the acting side, we haven't really talked about any of the controversy of this film. I, it was banned in so many places. It made a ton of money. Yeah. It made almost a hundred million dollars. Yeah. It cost a million dollars and it made almost a hundred million dollars just by basically being porn. Yeah, yeah. Essentially, of the time period. It, it, uh, first, when it was released in the US, it got an X rating. Then in 1981, it was re-released as an R-rated cut. Uh, in 1997, it was reclassified as NC-17. So in 20 years, it'll probably be like a PG or a U. It'll be on daytime TV. You can watch <laughs> it with your kids. Did you yeah, prefer extremely controversial. Last Tango or The Passenger? I really loved The Passenger. Huh. I don't know if that might be shocking to you, but I really, really enjoyed The Passenger. The Passenger is something I would I would like to watch again almost straight away. Wow. I, I got a ton. Yeah, I got a lot from The Passenger. I don't know. Well, I can go into some reasons why, but there's other things that even I, I think I can't even explain why. Well, I mean, go for it then. Well, this is the first Michelangelo Antonioni film I think I've seen. I haven't okay. seen Blow Up and I haven't seen any of his early 60s films. This was the last of his English language films. So he had Blow Up in 1966 and then This was his last Kate Blanchett as well. Oh, yeah? Yeah, he kind of like, he got a, he got like a lot of, Zabriskie uh, Point and its failure earned him some very bad uh, points in Hollywood. He put, put him in a lot of bad books. Have you seen Zabriskie Point? I have seen Zabriskie Point, yes. Is it any good? Yeah, I liked it, to be honest. I I kind of, I like I I like all of his movies that I've seen. I like this. I didn't like it as much as you, I feared. Yeah. Um, But uh, I quite like this. Yeah, I, I don't know. His films, they don't seem to want to tell you anything directly, which I appreciate. And like the main thing that I loved in, in The Passenger was 
just the locations, just traveling around. I thought that was fascinating. That was a massive part of it for me. It was filmed in places where I've lived for periods of time, Barcelona, Almeria. I lived for three years. So it was just mad to see like the second half of the film there. Mm. Um, so that was that was a big, big point for me. Similar to when we watched Sorcerer, seeing, seeing places in the 1970s yeah. and getting a sense of how people lived. I mean... To see Jack Nicholson walking around Franco, Spain. Yeah. The reality of that is crazy. Yeah. That means so much to me just as someone who's lived in lived in Spain for like nine years all around the country. Like, So th- a big part of the reason why I like the film is very personal is just due to having spent so much time in some of these places. But beyond that, I just, I love the mystery of this film. There's some, there's like an almost dreamlike quality to it. Yes. It doesn't give you an Absolutely, awful lot. Yeah. Norm, normally, I, 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 normally I'm the person who's saying I want more plot. I want more character depth. I want to understand the rationale. I want to understand what's motivating and driving characters. But here it didn't bother me so much. Like David Locke, Jack Nicholson's character, I don't really have any real sense of why he decides one day, like, oh, I don't want to be a journalist anymore. I'm going to take steal the identity of this arms dealer. It makes no sense to me beyond the fact that it's supposed to be representative of like a blank slate of starting over again, of running away from your past. And so it's like, it's kind of external to the actual plot of the film. But I just, I really, I I thought it was a really beautiful kind of understated film. And it was seeing the the Chaddy and Civil War again is something that I've never seen on film before. I enjoyed going to Africa and and going to Spain. And I thought Schneider was excellent. I thought she was much better in this compared to Last Tango in Paris. I just, again, such a, such a restrained performance. And uh, again, Nicholson is also, you know, he's not playing like classic Nicholson. It's much more in line with something like Chinatown, which was a year before. Yeah. Yeah, he's reined in in it. Yeah. Yeah, I think what the film kind of goes for, there's a, there's a very, there's a direct reference to Lawrence of Arabia in, in, near the start of the film, where he sees the camel rider off in the distance. Mm. And rather being Omar Sharif arriving to give his life meaning, the guy, the guy just goes right by him. <laughs> he just goes past him. Yeah, yeah, which um, is, and like the whole thing with Lawrence of Arabia is he goes into the desert to find himself. But with this guy, he goes into the desert and finds nothing, and so kind of just says, "Fuck it, I'll just, I'll just try to be someone else." Maybe you know. One thing that I really liked about it is the whole mystery of the arms dealer side of the story is never solved. We don't know what's yeah. happening with that. We see some thugs beat up some guys, and eventually they track him down. But it's largely, it's just a mystery, and it stays a mystery. That is like being in a dream. When those guys, when he meets those guys in the church and he gives them the piece of paper, it's mad. Like, it's like, you know, and they're just there looking at it. It's, yeah, yeah. I did, like, like I said, I don't think I connected with it as much as you did, mm-hmm. but I enjoyed that aspect of it a lot. I thought it, I thought it lacked a little bit in terms of pace, but I think that was also kind of the point. Like, I, I think- was never bored at all throughout. There's other films that we've watched which are a similar length. This is just over two hours and mm. I find myself losing focus. But even though this was, it is very, very, it's paced very, very slowly. But for some reason, it, it sucked me in. I was completely on board the whole way through. And um, you haven't seen any other films by Michelangelo Antonioni? 
No. Well, I mean... What do you recommend? Blow Up, I guess. Blow Up, I definitely recommend. Um, mm-hmm. I, like, I, like I said, Zabriskie Point was, it was completely panned. I watched it because I heard um, a Pink Floyd song that was in it, and I was like, oh, that's cool, I'll watch that. And I, I really enjoyed it. I haven't seen it in years, but I remember mm-hmm. quite liking it. And uh, I also loved um, La Ventura. Uh, I think that's a that's a great film. As and as a matter of fact, if you got a lot out of this, I would highly recommend you watch that without learning anything about it beforehand. Mm, I think that's his uh, his most highly rated film. That's that's a special film. I would say it's just like you look at it and you look at the year it was made, and I'm left thinking. It's nice I, in 1960. 1960, yeah. yeah, and I'm left thinking I can't believe somebody made this in in 1960. Mm. But yeah, he would have been known chiefly as like a sort of a modernist director. Wait, I've never been quite like I don't know fully what modernism is or what it means. I know it like it means the just being modern, the acknowledgement of progress and like I don't know architecture and you know that um, seeing yourself as in the the end of history and then embracing all things that are new and strange and weird. You can even you can certainly see that in. Um, Locke's decision to just uh, cut out his old life and start a new one, which is just, you know, I don't know, like there's a revolutionary spirit to the film as well. If the people who he's supposed to be selling guns to are are uh, referred to as like, you know, extreme people, revolutionaries of some sort. And Antonioni would have leaned very much the way of Bertolucci for much of his career. I think he, he ran, do you know about his documentary in China? No. Oh, it's an interesting story. So the names of the likes of Bertolucci and Fellini are probably well known, more well known nowadays, I would say. But Antonioni was at the, chiefly because of Blow Up was the arty European filmmaker name. He was the guy who was known for that. Blow Up, Blow Up is often credited with kickstarting the the um, new wave of American film in the nineteen seventies because it made a lot of money. And it re and it's it's so it's just the story of a photographer. It's set in swinging sixties London, um. So and the Yardbirds are in it, and like it's a lot of fun, and it's a real slice of life. You get to see what swinging sixties London was like yeah. in a real sense, not in a studio recreated fucking Austin Powers sense. Like you're going around. All <laughs> in my head, I was just going. Yeah, baby. But yeah, so he made that. And then the studio heads were just like, that's a movie about nothing. Okay, that's what we need. We need a movie about nothing. That led to um, Easy Rider getting even the tiny bit of money that it uh, did get. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, hugely connected people. And that kick-started the revolution when it came to American cinema. So, of course, he got invited over to um, Makes a Brisky Point. They gave him Kate Blanchett on a budget of $7 million. It made $1 million. It was critically pla- panned and... Like one of the ways that he wasted money, similar similar to in the passenger, one of the ways he used money is the finale of the the finale of it is a huge. It's all in this big weird mansion on a hill, and the mansion blows up, <laughs> and he did it. Like he actually fucking exploded a house on the yeah. side of a hill. Insane shit like that. But anyway, after that, he got invited over to. Um, to China to make a, a, the the government of China invited him over because he was a Marxist to make a documentary just about life in China at the time. And it's, it's a long one. Like it's 220 minutes. I've, I've seen clips from it. I've never actually seen it, but he focused most, most of the attention on um, working class peasant Chinese people. And 
I don't know how much you know about China, but like it was no picnic in set in the seventies. Being being a poor Chinese person, like it was really really tough. It wasn't a good place. There weren't even any picnics. There we go. Exactly. There was no picnics. Zero picnics. Yeah. So the, like it was just after the Cultural Revolution. People were dirt poor. There was famine, and he filmed it all very much warts and all. Apparently, this would have been the end of his kind of love affair with that line of thinking as well. He was a Marxist no more after that. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, the and he got booted out of the Italian Communist Party because they said it was propagandist and slanderous and that. But I mean, it's 220 minutes and apparently it's mostly just filming poor people. And yeah, they didn't like that. But I mean, because it made China look bad. But, you know, fuck it, China was bad. So then that's, I suppose, something of that identity change definitely filters into The Passenger, which he made next, you could you could say. The films he made after that, Mystery of Obervald, Identification of Woman and Beyond the Clouds are much lesser known works than anything that went before that. The Passenger was the last film that was on the map for him. Reading a little bit about his feelings about The Passenger, he hated the studio cut because his first cut was four hours. Then he brought in Franco Arcali, who was the editor in Last Tango in Paris, got it down to two and a half hours. MGM then cut another almost 30 minutes to take it down, which is why Stephen Burkhoff's role, among other things, is very feels very, very slight. His character was largely cut out and this film went out of print for years it was basically nicholson kept it out of print yeah because he owned it didn't he one of it yeah it's one of his favorite films he had a project with mgm that never went and he he took for payment he basically took the rights to uh to this film and then it was it was released i think in 2005 on dvd and he did a commentary which unfortunately i couldn't get hold of i'd be interested to hear jen nicholson yeah me too I would be interested in hearing that. Uh, what did you think of uh, What did you think of all the the long takes? Were you impressed with them? Yeah, I, I thought that the setups, the visuals in this were impressive to me. It, as I said, it, it, it held my attention throughout. I think it was just because what I was looking at was so interesting. Maybe in nineteen seven or nineteen seventy five, that might not have been so interesting to viewers at the time, but 50 years later, I mean, this was filmed in 1973, 50 years later, just even just visually, just seeing what's on screen just blows my mind. Well, one thing that I was really impressed with is how non-flashy the one shot action was. You know what I mean? It's yeah, especially that famous scene, the, the final scene. Yeah. 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 I mean, for what they did with it, you know, it's not like it's not like a you know they're not trying to do the Birdman thing for example right you know it's the stillness that they want they don't cut to kind of show you the stillness of the scene it's interesting and then there's mm-hmm. the flashback that's a, a one shot at the start as well yeah which is very interesting way to shoot that I thought I also I learned a lot about Jack Nicholson from watching this and then subsequently reading up on him and he's a very interesting guy Jack Nicholson I have to say. We've 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 talked about Maria Schneider, so I suppose the only member of the cast I'll really bring up here is is old uh, Wacko Jacko. But do you know about his um? Do you know about his early life, his family, alcoholic family, or something like that? No, not exactly. Well, that's uh, I mean, he's Irish American, so I'm sure there was um, yeah, there's a bit of drinking, a in there fair somewhere. bit of boozing in the house. But he found out from Time Magazine later in life, who did their research. Oh yeah, I remember that. That yeah. who he had thought was his sister was actually his mother. It's a classic Irish move. There you go. Yeah, she was only 17 when she had her, when she had him. And so he was raised to think that his grandmother was his, was his mother and just his, his actual mother was his sister. And by the time he found out off of Time magazine, 
madness. Uh, <laughs> or was he just on page three or something? I, no, no, they were interviewing <laughs> yeah, him. They were researchers, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they told him. In the 70s. Which is a mad by way that to time, do that. both his mother and grandmother had died. Yeah, yeah, they were both dead by that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and <laughs> Nicholson, in, in typical laconic fashion, basically said, yeah, I mean, I was grand. <laughs> Well, anyway, when he first got into the industry, he figured on being a writer and director, actually, on the other side of the camera. He had, like, he had flirted with the idea of um, being an actor and then just kept getting work uh, from Roger Corman as a... as a, Yeah, he was a Roger Corman guy. As a screenwriter and with occasional acting roles, because that's what Roger Corman would do. He would just recycle people. And he kind of just uh, got resigned to that fact. He's like, I'll be on that, this side of the camera. Then he wrote this film called The Trip which is kind of a blueprint for what Easy Rider became. And uh, Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper starred in it, and they met on the set of that. And that's where they basically got their idea to, like they were basically saying, how about we did this, but like not in a Roger Corman way, in a like, like not in an exploitation way. Let's try and set it in real life. So they did. So they got the idea from Nicholson. They made Easy Rider. He, he played a, an alcoholic lawyer who dies near the end. Sorry if you haven't seen that. <laughs> Everyone dies. Yeah, yeah, they, they all die. Yeah, yeah, but uh, I think actually of all, of all the deaths, Jack Nicholson was the only one that was a shock to me. I didn't expect Jack uh, Jack Nicholson to die. He gets beaten to death by some hillbillies. America won. This is it. Uh, yeah, America won. <laughs> he also co-wrote a movie called Head for the Monkeys that's apparently trippy and weird as oh, shit. yeah. But then in the 70s, of course, famously, Nicholson went from just strength to strength. Five Easy Pieces um, was a big one for me. Uh, I don't know. Let's see the last detail. Chinatown. The big one that won all the Oscars. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, of course. Yeah. Uh, and this came out. I mean, the, the Passenger came out year after Chinatown and mm. the same year as One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So it's right in his... Yeah. When he's, he's blown up. This guy's huge. He, at the time, he was like in the early 70s, um, before he was a global superstar, uh, Stanley Kubrick cast him as Napoleon, but the film ended up being shelved famously um, because uh, Dino De Laurentiis, the famous Italian epic producer, his film Waterloo tanked and yeah, Warner pulled the funding for Napoleon. But Nicholson stayed friends with uh, Kubrick um, all his life, and when eventually, that's why he eventually he was brought in and cast as Jack Torrance in The Shining, even though uh, Stephen King said he wanted much more of an an everyman kind of character. Did a, lo- a bunch of work with um, James L. Brooks over the years as well. Broadcast News, one of my favorite films. Um, also, uh, of course, uh, as good as it gets. I think actually maybe his last work as an actor was with James L. Brooks, if I'm thinking clearly. But yeah, yeah. He, like, always kind of made interesting work. Even near the end of his career, The Pledge is a real highlight for me from his la- final yeah, few I, years. Yeah, I enjoyed The Pledge. Uh, about Schmidt, he's great in, even though it's very funny because we'll get into this, it's very funny in the opening of the movie where you see Jack Nicholson in bed beside his wife and his wife is like an actual old lady and you're just like, I don't believe that. (laughs) (laughs) Dear Ndugu. Yeah, and of course then he's uh, probably... I think it was kind of accept. It's generally accepted that he's massively over-egging it in The Departed, but he's loads of fun in The Departed as (laughs) well. He is fun. Uh, Yeah, he's great. Uh, Like, you know, drawn pictures of priests sucking little boys' dicks in restaurants. Um, And do you know where the official, well, or unofficial, do you know where the unofficial announcement of uh, Nicholson's retirement came from? Uh, SNL. No. (laughs) It was just a guess. It was Mike Flanagan. 
Oh, the Flan Man. Yeah. So he reached out to Nicholson, tried to get him to do a cameo in Doctor Sleep. And he said that he was, no, he was retired, but he never made a big announcement about that. But I would say he'd been retired for a while because, yeah, uh, let me just look it up. Yeah, the the last thing, the last thing that Nicholson acted in was uh, How Do You Know in 2010. And that's directed by James L. Brooks. Yeah. So 2010 was when he basically retired, but didn't really tell anybody. And I've I've already told you that story of um, when Louis C.K. phoned him up to get him to be in Horace and Pete. (laughs) I just think it's a very funny story because it just makes Nicholson seem like such a, what would be the word, a stoic kind of a fella. Louis C.K. asked him to play a a role that eventually went to, oh, what's the name of the guy who was the leader? Is it Mash? Alan Alda or something? Yeah, Alan Alda. Yeah. A horrible guy called Uncle Pete. And uh, he asked him to play the role. And uh, Nicholson did had read the script by this point. And uh, his answer was, uh, Louis, do you know what I did today? <laughs> I went outside my house and sat under a tree and I read a book. And then when I finished the book, I got up and went inside again. And that was kind of the answer of, okay, no. You're, you're. To be fair, I mean, at this point, he's 85. Yeah, yeah. He's just turned 85 last month, so. Yeah, I mean. Lamb, yeah, let the guy have his rest. Exactly. I mean, like, I remember being bummed out for a little bit that Gene Hackman had retired, but then you're kind of like. He's ah, yeah. so old. But then he's not doing weird old shit things, which is good too. He was already unhappy 20 years ago. <laughs> he said to Wes Anderson on the Royal Tenenbaums, he was like, you promised me it would be fun. <laughs> it's not fun. Is that, is that true? Yeah. He, he moaned about it the whole, he was apparently, he was quite hard work and he, he moaned about having been promised that he would have fun. Oh God, that's, that's, that does sound like a pathetic old man who shouldn't be working anymore, <laughs> quite frankly. He's in his nineties, Hagman, to be fair, so... With regards to Nicholson's acting style, he said that, like, he has said that he's uh, he is method, but nobody seems to notice it about him or anything like that or comment on it. So he says he must be doing it right if he's not all flashy and stuff like that. I've heard many people say that Nicholson frequently just gives the same performance, but I don't think that's true. What would you say it, to that? It, maybe it's a bit of the, the Al Pacino type thing where he reached a point where he just became big shouty man. Or he reached the point where he became this caricature of himself. If you've been going so long and you're so well known, yeah, I think at a certain point maybe it, it can be a danger that you fall into you fall into this giving the same performance all the time. Yeah, that's probably fair. But when you're younger, it's there's a bit more range, maybe. Yeah. At a certain point, you're so set in your ways, and the people also hire you because of all the, your previous roles, and they're like, "I do do it like you did it in that one." Yeah. Of course, Nicholson, one other thing, just, uh, well, a couple of other things. He was next door neighbours, actually, with, um, well, he lived on the same street as Marilyn Brando and uh, Warren Beatty. People uh, called it, took to calling it Bad Boy Row. And um, he was very good friends with uh, famous producer Robert Evans. Um, and when he lost all his, um, when he lost everything because of a coke deal done on Malta when they were filming Popeye the Sailor Man with, um, what's his name, Robert Altman? Robert Altman, yeah. Uh, yeah, they, uh, Nicholson bought him his house back, which is quite nice of him. Just dro- drops it, but they were very good friends. Uh, Evans, of course, will soon be portrayed alongside um, Brando in the upcoming series about the making of The Godfather. I think it's called The Deal. But anyway, all of that aside, I would just like to talk about, based on maybe it's based on his early life, uh, but Nicholson has... Uh, a shaky relationship with uh, his children. A very good relationship with ladies. Not that he's a, said to be a bad father, but... Very similar to Brando. The amount of, like, 
contested paternities that he's got <laughs> under his belt is just nuts. But he's he like he has acknowledged everybody who's you know his kids these days. <laughs> Everyone who wins. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, he's never settled down. He had a long. He had. He was with what's her what's her chops. Uh, Angelica, Angelica Houston. Houston for seventeen years on and off. But in the meantime, just you know, having affairs here and there with just everybody. Yeah, it's fair to say. When he was 69, he dated Paz de la Huerta when she was 22. That's right. I saw that. Like a creepy Scientology lady. Yeah, nice. But yeah, yeah, that's it basically just from one lady to the other, it did it. Lara, Lara Flynn Boyle for a good yeah, while. Yeah, she sounds like a thing. Yeah, yeah, she yeah. She's in Twin Peaks. She's a famous, yeah, yeah, sure, she's the... Um, she was in Wayne's World. She's the best friend in Twin Peaks. She was also in The Practice. Yeah, was he was also that. linked to to Kate Moss at one point in two, in 2004. It's mental, like. Yeah, that's not good. Yeah, yeah, but anyway. Yeah, Jack Nicholson likes to get ass, apparently. So there you have it. That's all I got on Nicholson. Should we dive right into The Passenger and what occurs? Yeah, because uh, I, we've already talked about Maria Schneider and that's all there is in this there's a few english actors and actresses in the passenger but it's all about it. you know, Stephen burkoff's there mm. but his role is so minute yeah it's it's, uh, it's puzzling actually his role yeah and that's it okay so david Locke, who's jack nicholson's character is a television journalist uh making a documentary film in africa about the uh, chadian civil war and he he's having a tough time trying to find people to interview. So he drives out into the middle of the desert, um, but then his his Land Rover gets stuck in a sand dune. It's at this point where we've got the uh, Lawrence of Arabia reference that I mentioned earlier. But he's just in the middle of the desert like, why? He gets back to the hotel, gets them to bring him some water. This too, to me, is just water really interesting. Water and gin, it looked like, right? Did water and gin is what he gets, too? yeah. Yeah. Uh, but this to me was really interesting. He's that's a hotel in Africa in the seventies. That's bizarre. Yeah, I think that was filmed in Algeria. That's right, yeah. Rather than Chad, but still, Algeria in the seventies is is no picnic. Hell no. Anyway, then, Algeria now is supposedly quite rough. Anyway, a real away. bummed out lock uh, goes to uh, thump on the door of um, this uh, English fellow he met called Robertson, who's staying in the same hotel and who he had a bit of a friendship with. But he finds him dead. And just immediately, immediately, Locke decides to take his identity. <laughs> I'm going to steal this guy's life. Yeah. So, oh yeah, that's a re- that's the really interesting bit with the um, one-shot flashback where he's thinking about yeah. Robertson on the bed and the camera pans around and he joins Robertson by the window, presumably in a conversation they had two yeah. nights ago. It's cool. Yeah, so then he switches over the passports. It looked very easy to steal identities back in the 70s. That, that was that, That's another thing I liked about this is just... It's a story about this Locke character trying to almost like get freedom from his past, but it feels like in the 1970s, people didn't realize how easy, it, how easy they had it yeah. in terms of like restarting right? compared to nowadays. Like the fact that you can fucking just cut out someone's passport photo and then when he goes to he the uh, hotel staff are just like ah you're the guy you're the the, the you're the white guy <laughs> you're the guy. white guy <laughs> you're the white guy fair play it's so easy to get around it the fact that they ever caught up with him at all is ridiculous yeah i don't know he should yeah. have just disappeared yeah which he definitely could have yeah yeah he's been a bit he, he was uh, you could have like it, it, it's have you ever read the book uh, rabbit run no it's about this fellow who just fucks off on his family in the in the 40s and the thing is you're reading it and you're going yeah you could do that <laughs> you could just do yeah. that 
I'm yeah. going to get a pack of cigarettes. That's what he does. He does the classic thing. It's going to be way harder for you when you decide to do it. <laughs> Indeed, it will be. Yeah, I don't to, know what I'm going to do. You're going to have to get rid of your social media and all kinds. I'm going to have to cut off my face. But anyway, yeah, the plan the plan works. He's uh, he's of, he's officially Robertson now. So then we go to we cut back to London where uh, his wife, uh, Locke's wife, not Robertson's wife, Locke's wife, is Rachel. having an a, affair with a dude uh, played by Stephen Berghoff. But the it's a plot that's just irrelevant and comes to nothing. It's a strange little addition to the film. Um, they also misspelled Stephen Berghoff's name in the credits. Did they? Oh, that's a bummer. Yeah, they put an H in it. The final which insult. Is, that's how little of <laughs> how little importance he was. So she feel she's really bummed out then when she learns about her husband's death uh, and she goes to uh, Locke's friend who's a television producer in, a, in an attempt to um, to get in touch with the, the dude who discovered the body, Robertson, who she doesn't of course know is actually her husband Locke and uh, find out more about um, his last few days. So then Locke, while you know, but he's Robertson now. He goes to Munich and he picks up some of the dead dude's belongings. Um, Even before that, I think would you? There's there's that strange scene where Locke goes back to London. This was cut in the in the MGM cut, which oh, I when think he goes back to his own apartment, theatrical one in in the US. Yeah, he goes back to his house yeah. in London and finds evidence that his wife has been having an affair. Yeah, and there's also another weird flashback scene yes. I need to see again, which is when he's outside burning, burning stuff. Yeah, that's weird. And she's looking out the window going like, what What are you doing, David? I suppose that's kind of like a hint of him being unhappy yeah, with his life. Right, he wants to escape his life. Yeah, he's trying to burn the past down. Thank God that there wasn't a four-hour cut of this movie. Like, I would take two and a half hours. I would though, take two and a half hours. I would take yeah, no... Four, but there's a four-hour cut of everything. Yeah, that's true. That's just the first cut of every single film. Imagine like a four-hour Michael Bay film. That must be tough. And a four-hour Michael Bay film, that fucking would be tough. But the thing is, it's like, like okay, so there's a guy who never got cut. Uh, your man, Tcharkovsky. Have you ever seen any of his films? No. I mean, I've seen one, Stalker, and it's it, it's it's boring. Like, it is boring. It's interesting, but it's boring. <laughs> there's no escaping that. And, like, the thing is, one thing that I have to wonder is, like, do these, did these dudes think that these would be entertaining, or are they not interested in entertaining? Like, cause even somebody like Bergman, we watched Fanny and, uh, Fanny and Alexander, yeah. and that's one of his much longer ones, and that that is a long movie. But loads it's never not in that. entertaining. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Um, I think there there might just be an element of it where you're so close to the material. I think everyone's like that to an extent, where you've made something and you think it's great because you're it was your blood, sweat, and tears and your ideas that went into making this thing and you were there at the time and it had you know what it represents and what it means. Sure. But you're too close to the material. It's just that, I think. And then but you you kind of underestimate that the average person has very little interest yeah. in, in your bullshit. That's true. Uh, have you ever watched, well, I'll name you, I watched one of Bella Tarr's films because Roger Ebert put it on it. Like, this is no. the pretentious director. <laughs> and like, the thing is, and this is one a criticism that was leveled at Antonioni a lot. Like, critics would ask the people who would criticize him, they're like, what are you gaining by just that long cut? Like, why do I want to walk down the road with this woman? But the, And the answer is, the real answer is, sometimes that shit works and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. Um, and it's certainly, you shouldn't do it all the time, which is what... There is like a mad alchemy to all these things as well. You never know if they're going to work or not until you get into the editing room, is what they say. Yeah. Anyway, so he goes over to Munich and picks up uh, some of these, some of um, Robertson's belongings. And um, 
in it, he has a a diary, a diary which um, tells basically tells tells us what the remaining locations in the film are, and also he also rents a car and says, "Yeah, I'm going to go to Yugoslavia. I'll drop the car off." Yeah, yeah, that's right. I'll drop the car off there. I'm going to drive down to Dubrovnik and for the rest of my life, <laughs> which Liar. I respect. And then. He also, I, I couldn't figure out how exactly he ended up going to the locker in the airport, but he does. And uh, there is a... Because he's, it's in the notes that he picked up, what he took off of Robertson's body. Mm. It says locker or whatever, 58 or whatever. And there's something that, there's something that says it's Munich airport. Okay. Well, anyway, inside there, there's like a little folder with loads of pictures of guns and prices underneath them. <laughs> doesn't seem that important a document. No, it doesn't. <laughs> Like you give him a gun catalog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, it right. Yeah, it's a bit. It's a bit silly that to be fair. But then, yeah, he leaves the airport and uh, goes to a wedding. It's weird that. Yeah, I didn't get the wedding scene at all. But then the guys from the airport have followed him there. Yeah two guys who we see just sitting around in the airport plus even earlier on there's that very strange moment where when he's back in london going to his house and he's walking along the street and he sees you see a girl sitting on a bench and you're like that's maria yeah, it's schneider. maria schneider yeah yeah I forgot <laughs> Wait, about what's that, going yeah. on what is going on and i was happy that they referenced that later on because i was kind of expecting like some i was expecting some insane turn of events like she would be working for the baddies or something yeah but they did just reference it the Ah, and that gets back to that dreamlike thing where he's like, I saw a girl and I'm sure it was you. And it's obviously, it can't have been her. Yeah. It's just, uh, that, that's why I really, I did, uh, that's the kind of thing that I really like. And well, like, despite the fact that I was weirded out a little bit by it, th- him going to the wedding makes uh, an odd kind of sense. Because the thing is, he's just basically, he's got, he's got a new life now. He's like, well, I yeah. do. I'll just fucking go, go to this wedding. Yeah, why not? And then anyway, the two boys come up to him in the church and uh, he gives them the catalogue <laughs> and they're, they give out. him a bunch of money. <laughs> How is he supposed to be selling them guns? I don't like, know. He gave them a Where piece does he of paper. get the guns from? Yeah, he gave them paper and he's like, because later on he says to the girl, I just sold these guys a bunch of guns. And I'm like, well, you gave them a catalogue and they gave you some money. Mm. Are the guns going to be transferred at some point? No wonder he gets killed. Uh, yeah, indeed. So then, it, like it, it, like it's obvious at that point that yeah, we learned Robertson was a gun runner, and uh, so he buggers off to Barcelona with his money. Where he, I don't know, is he planning on getting the rest of the money? He must be because also, he goes to Barcelona. I think in the nineteen seventies, reading a little bit about it to try and put that in the perspective of the time period, being a gun runner who's selling arms to an African nation in these in this period I mean it's it's a it's a civil war but there's it seems to be almost that they're selling the, they're kind of pushing for this as some kind of noble cause yeah for sure rather than like you're perpetuating a civil war yeah <laughs> that is going to leave you know x number of people dead no no that's the idea yeah yeah for sure i think He's that's like just like a freedom fighter you know that's a little bit of the remnants of his politics i suppose in it yeah the more i think about it now cuz i did know that um i did know about uh, antonioni's falling out with the communists that I mean, you could say then that there's a lot of him in the Nicholson character, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? He likes that wouldn't surprise me of the 1970s films that the the main characters are stand-ins for the writers or mm. directors. Yeah, he's just like he's a little bit 
he, uh, he's a bit of a fraud in the cause, I suppose, is what it transpires to be in the end. It's interesting. Like, yeah, and I didn't think about that till we talked about that documentary on China. But yeah, I, that's, I'd say mm-hmm. that's definitely the case here. Anyway, then they go to my hometown, Barcelona, and it's just fucking fascinating. I like that. I love that. I just love all of that stuff. Like all the Gaudi buildings that had fallen into disrepair mm. that are now huge kind of tourist monuments. Yeah, because t- it makes you realize no one, one thing. There. The tourism industry is very new. Yeah. You know what I mean? 70s Barcelona was, I, I, as we've mentioned before, This is these are Franco times. Yeah. Like the docks are entirely industrial. Everything that was built in 1992 is all, you know, none of that was there, obviously. And it's just, I'd heard that before when I when I lived there, just like how much of the seafront was a complete shithole. Well, like yeah, there was no beach. Heavily. Yeah, there was no beach. The, the beach is like entirely artificial. Yeah. That's, yeah, it's it, got a, it has a funny old story as a city. There's another one, um, there's a bullfighting film I remember I told you about that has a lot of scenes in Barcelona. Um, in mm-hmm. particular, like there's scenes in the bullring that's now in Plaza España. It's now a shopping center. And the thing is, in it, Barcelona looks like a shithole. Like it looks like it's a really poor, rough city. Now, granted, this was even this was filmed even before The Passenger, I'd say. It was in the late 60s that one was made. So, I mean, it's got a few years in it still. But anyway... That's fascinating, looking at all those Gaudi buildings. It, when he's in Barcelona, he sees Martin, the guy his wife has uh, sent after him. So he he, po- he's, he pops into a Gaudi building. I, I think yeah, it's he goes La, into La, La Pedrera, isn't it? He, uh, before that, he goes to Palau Gual, just off of the Ramblas. Is that what that one is? The, the, the first where place. He meets Maria. That's where he meets the girl. He meets Maria there. Then he goes to Casa Mila. What's the character? Does she does she have a name, Maria Schneider's character in it? No, she's called the girl. Ah, okay, fair enough. So I, I wasn't just <laughs> not remembering her because she's a lady character. That's good. Antonioni didn't remember her name either, clearly. Yeah, and he gets her to get his belongings from the hotel uh, so he won't be seen by... Um, uh, by Martin, who's looking out for it. Anyway, all the same, Martin sees that she's collecting the baggage and he asks her um, <laughs> to take him along to meet Robertson. So she she has a car and she says, follow She's me. very slick. She yeah, is, she's yeah. like, hey, just, would you mind following me in a taxi? Yeah, exactly. And then she and then basically she just scoots a little bit faster up near a crossing, a traffic lights, and gets through it before him. And then he's blocked off. And that's on Ramblas. And uh, Ramblas looks the exact same. There's so many, I mean, so many of those buildings haven't changed. Mm. The front of the hotel that they're in. Yeah, yeah. There's various other places. Obviously, the architecture is exactly the same. It's just now there's so much tourist shit has sprung up around it. Yeah, it was bizarre to see the the Pedrera without a crowd of Chinese people outside it. Not only that, but when they're up on the roof, there's like washing hanging. Yeah, It's just a building. It's just a roof. It was just a rooftop, which is insane to think. That became a UNESCO World Heritage Site in the 80s. Yeah. So it was completely run down. It had been painted uh, like dull colors. They had to spend a lot of money to bring it back up to scratch. I was going to say about the girl, thinking about it now, of her motivations and, and everything, the fact that she goes along with all of this, the fact that he thinks that he saw her in London, it just seems to me like she does not seem like a real character at all. She just seems like a figment of his Been a big underlying few week, desires. Uh, weeks for uh, figments of imaginations. Yeah. I keep, I really want to watch Red Rocket again. Yeah. Uh, anyway. This is very much the, uh, the first Red Rocket. Indeed, yeah. Original. So she, uh, no, sorry, they, they, they then leave the city together and um, stop at a wee hotel and have sex, and all of a sudden, yeah, they're they're uh, they're lovers. 
they've uh, eloped and he's got loads of money so he's just paying for shit I suppose but for some reason still he wants to go to this meeting that he's supposed to go to oh yeah None and in the meantime during during this time we have seen a bunch of black dudes arrive at a hotel and beat the shit out of someone be the shit out of the guy who was trying to purchase weapons yes exactly um, to overthrow I assume to overthrow the regime in, in Chad yeah exactly although Chad is never named right no I don't believe it is just African Although rebels. he's the best name for a country. Yeah. And should be respected as such. And they're, uh, yeah, they, they, <laughs> your man beats the shit out of one of them in a funny way with some Kung Fu. At some point in this, uh, like when, um, when Rachel is visiting David's employer, Martin Knight, when she goes to see him and she's watching, uh, some of the interviews and scenes that he shot. Yeah. She, he shows her footage of someone being executed. That's real footage. Yeah. That's, it was filmed in Lagos in the 1970s. It was wow. an armed robber and he's killed by firing squad. And it ended up in an Antonioni film. when I was Antonio watching it, I was thinking like, well, that looks pretty real. <laughs> it's essentially just a snuff film. Yeah, wow. Inserted in the middle there. Yeah, you're right. It was the 70s. True that. Yeah, so they bugger off. This part is really interesting just to watch them in small town Spain even and little places, yeah. bars and stuff like that. I find that very interesting. Back in London, I'm going to say, Rachel gets Locke's things. Um, and that's where he's watching the tape that yeah, you're talking about. Yeah, she goes about. to the embassy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Chadian embassy, I assume. <laughs> and she heads she heads out to Spain anyway. The, do like the, I don't know what you'd call them, the thugs, let's say. They follow her and um, she, get, she gets the Spanish police in, in on the pursuit anyway. So the Spanish police are after him as well. But Spanish police of this time are hardcore as well. Yeah, yeah, they're fascist like, police. Franco boys, has. Yeah. And then uh, like, yes, but he is just intent on making this final meeting for some reason. Uh, but he, uh, he eventually sends Maria Schneider away telling her she'll meet him in Tangiers, which was then still the international zone, I think. So, and she gets on a bus to leave him alone. He reaches this hotel, small hotel that it turns out uh, Antonioni built for the purpose of the final shot. But anyway, um, that was in uh, that's in the town of Vera. That's where my ex used to work as a as a piano teacher. He used to work there. Ah, there we go. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, yeah. It's about like. Um, it's clear to anybody who knows it that it is, in fact, that town. Then anyway, uh, it, she, it turns out when he gets to the hotel that she hasn't gone to Tangiers. She uh, has booked into the room, posing as his wife, and they've got an adjoined room. He tries to get her to leave, and then she, but she just buggers off, and uh, she's hanging around in the square outside. And then we get our big, long final shot. So we're in the room with Locke, who's lying on the bed, and then the camera just slowly drifts towards the bars on the window. What they did was it was actually when they got close enough so the bars were obscured, they had a mechanism built into them whereby the, the railings would just slide away so the camera could get through that way. So then what we see is it emerges out into the courtyard and you see the uh, the the hitmen from, from Chad or wherever arrive. They come in, we hear a gunshot, and then they leave again. Then the police it's arrive. It's a very, very tense scene. Yeah, yeah. And then the police arrive and... They're looking around, including the girl. They're looking around. And we, we go outside and we pan all around the courtyard and then back into the room. And we see um, we see Rachel and the girl discover Locke dead on the bed. And that's the end of the movie. It's pretty cool. And Rachel says that she never knew him. Mm. But did she mean that in like a metaphorical, I guess I never knew him? Something like that. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> it's not very helpful when you're trying to ID the guy. <laughs> 
No. And like, the thing is... They're like, do you recognize him? And she's like, I never knew him. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, like, is this your husband? That's a lost in translation thing, yeah. And the girl's like, yes, no, I know the guy I was trying to... <laughs> I was just trying to be, you know... There's the guy. Trying to yeah. be cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's seven minutes. It's not flashy at all. And a lot of... There was a lot of technicalities went into it. Went into it like it was on a, a track on the roof, first of all, and then handed over when it got outside the window onto a onto a crane with all these gyroscopes attached so that the camera wouldn't shake when it was handed over. It's crazy. And it's not a flashy shot, but it was clearly very important to Antonioni to get it because, I mean, he built the hotel for it, basically. Uh, yeah, madness. But uh, pretty cool, I'll say. I quite enjoyed it. Quite enjoyed the film. As I said, not as much as you, but uh, yeah, it was yeah, definitely I'll good. Definite, I will definitely rewatch this. I want, it's the kind of thing where I feel like, and we talked about this in recent episodes, but I feel like this will be rewarded with multiple viewings. Mm. I think there's a lot to, to soak in here, but it's, it is also quite slow. So, Well, it definitely made me want to fill in the blanks on his filmography that I haven't seen too, and maybe, and definitely um, rewatch some of the things that I quite enjoyed. Right. Yeah, it makes me want to rewatch Happy Gilmore. Hell yeah. So, shall we go into the coin toss? Let's do it. Well, what I brought uh, this time round, I'm not sure exactly how I came across this one. It's a film that I've uh, heard about a bit, but I've never seen it before. It was uh, directed by Sidney Lumet. It's from 1965, a British prison drama, The Hill, starring Sean Connery. Mm, Yeah, been on my list for a bit, that. You haven't seen it either? No, I have not. Uh And it looks very much up my street. Yeah, I um, I'm gonna do, yeah, I'm gonna put up uh, Richard Linklater's uh, first of his before trilogy, before Sunrise. Which, to be fair, I think we probably owe it. Uh, it doesn't matter which whichever ones you nominate there, because I can I can exclusively reveal if you win the toss, it's going to be the other two films. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. And what I think it's fair Linklater? to say we'll probably do these at some point anyway. If I don't win this toss, yeah. so fuck it. Sure. All right, cool beans. You got your coin. What are my options? Your options. This is a one kuna coin. So it's uh, a a bird or a one. A one kuna coin, a Croatian kuna. It's a bird or one. Give me the bird. Okay. The bird is the word. The bird is is one. The bird has won. Oh, my God. All right. I'm not too disappointed about that. I would have happily watched The Hill. What would I have won alongside The Hill? Uh, oh, right, yeah. The, what you would have won alongside The Hill? Uh, 1964's film The Train, directed by John Frankenheimer with Burt Lancaster. Right. It's another you World War II. I know you've been desperate to watch that. You had that up for a toss many, many moons ago. Did I? Uh, yeah, yeah. I want to yeah, watch that at some point. It's ago. supposed to be pretty cool. So, unfortunately, those two are going to go on the back burner because we're going to be watching the Before Trilogy, Hell Before yeah. Sunset, Before... No, way, is it Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, Before Midnight? All right, cool beans. Well, I, I'm really looking forward to this. And also, these will be movies I can uh, I can watch with my wife because uh, she'd be mad into this shit, I'd say. I think so. They're, they're, they're great films. I've seen all three before, but I'm looking forward to re-watching them. I know I'll, I'll be able to... We'll, we'll be diving a lot, I think, into, I guess, the relation, the interpersonal relationships between the two characters. I think that's what it's all going to be about, but we'll see that. But next time, Ryan, we're going to be talking about Doctor Strange in a week's time. Yes, 
Doctor, which Doctor Strange? Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Good. We're going to have to say that every single time we refer to it. <laughs> yeah. That's the rule. I'm going to be calling it Doctor Strange too, but Sweet. fair enough. All right, cool beans. Until then, bye. Bye. Bye.